Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter 7. And also, put a finger on uh, Ezekiel 47. So, John chapter 7. And John will be looking at verse 37. And then also, if you want to get a head start, go ahead and um, open to Ezekiel 47 as well. While you're flipping there, um, let me say a couple things. Um, First, uh, we are starting a a brand new sermon series this morning. So like Adam uh, shared last week, he's been preaching through our, our mission statement as a church. Last week he shared about SSS, and SSS stands for Sundays, Service, Small Groups. And our leadership at the church is using SSS as a very simple way to communicate to all of us to challenge and encourage every member to be committed to three things, uh, Sundays, Service, and Small Groups. And so uh, for the next three Sundays, Adam, Daryl, and I will each be taking one S and, and preaching that S. I'm kicking us off with uh, service. And, uh, and that was the first thing. The second thing, um, Adam already hit it, but they're saying that this could be, might possibly be, the very last Sunday that we're here. So for you sentimental types, I want you to really just lean back in those cozy auditorium chairs and take it all in, you know. This could be the last one. So, um, But go ahead and stand, if you will, for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading just from John, uh, John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Pray with me. God, these are your very words, not just man's words, but God, your words. The words of our creator, our king. And God, I ask as we look at them now, as I preach them, I pray that you would help me. And God, I pray that you would help all of us to receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We live, to make an observation, we live in a world that is full of words. I know, starting very deep right now. Words. They're everywhere. Uh, All day long, every day, we... We are receiving words, we're reading them, we're hearing them from televisions to car radios, cell phones, computers, even from people in your family and at work. Have you noticed that we as humans, we're talking a lot? It's not a very deep thought, but you get it. We're, we're talking and we're communicating to each other quite often. Here's a question. How do you know when what you've just heard is very significant? is very important. How do you judge when a message you just heard, words that you just received, are more than ordinary, but are extremely, extremely 
important, significant, maybe even life-changing? I would suggest there are a couple ways. Uh, Ordinary words might be made more important uh, by looking at the occasion of the words when they're said. So very ordinary words in a very extraordinary occasion make them very important. Take this for an example. We shall fight on the beaches. Does anybody know those words, heard those before? They come from a, uh, a very uh, famous speech that was given by Winston Churchill. Those words in and of themselves are probably not that important. We shall fight on the beaches. I did uh, college ministry for a few years at Myrtle Beach, and I probably shouted that at several you know, college students throughout the years. We shall fight on the beaches. But uh, uh, the, the circumstance, when you know it, makes those ordinary words very important. As Churchill had to give a speech right after the Battle of Dunkirk, warning of Nazi in, in, invasion, but encouraging the heart of his people not to, to lose heart. We could look at other occasions, Lincoln's Gettysburg, uh, Gettysburg Address, we hear highly resolved that these dead shall not have died in vain. Or Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream speech, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Otherwise, ordinary words take on extraordinary significance in certain occasions. A second way, not just occasion of words, but maybe the actual content of certain words the, the content itself, it, it, you know, is an indication that it's significant. For instance, probably one of the most significant phrases you could say to someone is, I love you, right? And uh, although I made many boneheaded mistakes in my dating relationship with my now wife, I, I waited to say, I love you until I had a ring in my pocket, you know? And so that was the moment when I pulled it out and I said, I love you. She probably didn't hear it and doesn't remember it at all. <laughs> but uh, that was the first time I said those very important words, I love you. Got on one knee and said, will you marry me? Also, words that are important just by the very content of what they have. So maybe it's the occasion of words that can make them significant. Or maybe it's the content. I'd say maybe another thing is the implication of words. How words change us, that can make them more than just ordinary. I'll never forget uh, my, my grandpa who had a huge impact on my life, teaching me the Bible, and uh, I look up to him so much. He passed away going on four years ago, um, and he passed away of uh, dementia. And uh, I was able to speak with him one week before he passed away. And uh, he knew, he kind of knew that, you know, the time was drawing near, and so all of the, you know, grandchildren were, were each speaking with him. And uh, I'll never forget, he was kind of giving us a final blessing or benediction. And I'll never forget my grandpa uh, saying to me, he looked me straight in the eyes, he said, Hunter, I respect you as a man. And I just, yeah, you know, someone once said that manhood cannot be earned, it can only be given, it can only be bestowed. And, you know, the, those words my grandpa spoke to me, I'll never forget as long as I live, words whose implications to this day still matter to me. I'm sure there are more ways that we can tell words are important, but you can see occasion, content, implications. These things can make words more than just ordinary, but actually very significant. You're probably wondering why I'm telling you. Well, it seems to set us up for a good sermon, right? A good three-point sermon. You know, the words we just read that Jesus just shared are extremely important, whether or not you recognized it. And in fact, 
for all three of these boxes, they check it. Jesus is speaking something at a very important occasion. The content that he is saying is extremely important, but also I believe the implications for us as a church are significant to this day. And so I think we have a lot we can learn from these three verses about our topic today, which is service. And as I approached the topic of service, I was thinking, well, I could talk about what service is, you know, what it looks like, or I could talk about how, you know, you could be involved in service at Redeemer. But as I looked at these verses, I thought, you know, what these verses really do is step back and they address the question, why? Why do we serve? And so that's what I want to talk about today. If you have a bulletin on the very back of it, there's a a spot you can take notes, and you'll also see my sermon in one sentence, which, uh, which is this. Jesus saves us to serve others. Jesus saves us to serve others. And uh, I think this is a very important dimension of our salvation, and I want to talk about that today by looking at these verses. So three points on Uh, this idea that Jesus actually saves us to serve others. The first point is this, and so you can write it next to number one if you want to take notes, but the first point is this. Jesus is the source of salvation. Jesus is the source of salvation. The first thing we learn from these verses, look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, And cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So you don't have to know all the context to get the idea. It's a feast, it's a public place, and Jesus, he stands up in this very public place. He starts yelling, he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. It's a pretty pretty shocking, kind of jarring passage. What's interesting is John, the writer of John, is, is giving us a clue as to the occasion In verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So what's going on here? Well, we know that this is, the feast is the feast of booths. We see that earlier in John chapter 7. If you just flip back and look at verse 2, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So many of you may be familiar with the idea of the feast of booths, at least a general idea. The feast of booths was eight days, a little over a week, where all the Jews would gather together and they would live in booths or tents or tabernacles. And they would live in in these tents for eight days and they would celebrate. And it was a way of uh, celebrating how God had led them out of Egypt through the wilderness where they lived in tents into the promised land. So it was designed to, the feast was a way to make them a little bit uncomfortable right? So they would never forget where God had brought them from. But it was also a way of commemorating and celebrating how far he had brought them. So for us as a church, if we were to modernize the Feast of Booths, what we would do, we would come back to Sun Valley one week out of every year to set everything back up like we always did. We would live in tents, you know. It'd be awesome. No, it wouldn't. (laughs) Before I get booed off the stage. Um, so you, you may know that much about the Feast of Booths, but I wonder if you know a few other details. Here are some things you may not know, which are helpful for kind of painting the picture. The Feast of Booths was one of seven feasts that was commanded to the Jews. You can find them all in Leviticus 23. 
it was not only one of the seven, but the Feast of Booths was actually the last of the seven. So it was the final feast of the year, and it, it was designed to, to celebrate the harvest, all of the provision that God had given for the, that, the previous year, but also to pray for God's blessing for a good rainy season for the upcoming year. Uh, the feast was held at the temple. According to Deuteronomy 16, 16, all Jews, all male, Jew, Jewish males and their families had to attend. So this was not, I mean, not like an optional feast. It was like a nationwide party. It was the last Jewish holiday on the calendar. It'd be kind of like our Thanksgiving and our Christmas rolled into one, and we all had to be in the same place, living in tents. You know? So uh, it was a big occasion. Here are some other things you may not know. There was a, a particular schedule to the eight days. Uh, they would offer certain sacrifices that changed throughout the days. There were also three daily rites, three daily practices that were performed during the, the feast. So the first was a, a morning prayer. That was a, a rite the priest performed. The second was at night, uh, they brought in these huge menorahs into the temple area, and they had basically like an ancient Jewish dance party. I'm not kidding. It was, that was the second rite, was this massive feast and celebration. But the third daily ceremony, which is interesting and important for our purposes, is a water-pouring ceremony. So at the very first day of the Feast of Booths, the priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam, and they would take this giant golden bowl, and they would fill it with water, enough water to last for the entire feast, and with a, a you know, parade, they would, they would bring it back up into the temple area, and every day, they would pour out some water in, 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 in a, a worship ceremony, and it was a prayer, God, please send us rain, please provide for us. On the very last day of the feast, the eighth day, the great day, the water-pouring ceremony reached a climax. Because what they would do is they would take everything that was left in the giant basin of water and they would pour the whole thing out. And it was called the Hoshana Rabbah, which is translated, save now. So you can get the, the picture in your head. You've got every, every Jew, you know, who's responsible, <laughs> every Jew in the nation gathered to this one spot in the temple. And for a whole week... They've been feasting, they've been partying, they've been living out of tents, eating bugs, whatever you do when you live in tents, I don't know. And then the last day of the feast comes, the great day. And everyone gathers for a holy convocation where you have to be there. And what do they do? They, they pour out this giant basin of water as they pray to God, God, will you provide rain for us? It's a huge act of worship. And... In, on that day, the great day, maybe right before, maybe right after, they pour out this water. Jesus stands up in front of the entire nation and shouts, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. So you can see, you can see how this was such a significant occasion and apparently this caused quite a division because if you look at verses 40 through 52, it says when the people heard these words, some people said this really is the prophet or this really is the Christ. 
basically, Jesus couldn't have been any more plain. It, he could have just stood up and said, I am God. Here I am. You've been praying to me. Thank you. I decided to show up. I'm glad to be here. Happy to help. Come to me if you're thirsty. You know, I've often uh, wondered what it would look like, you know. Was there confusion? You know, did people, did people go to Jesus with water bottles? You know, what, what were they thinking, you know, as, as Jesus says, come to me and drink? We don't know exactly what they did, but we do know what Jesus was talking about. We know that Jesus was not just talking about physical water. Jesus was not claiming to be a water boy. We know that Jesus was talking about living water. Just like the woman at the well in John chapter 4, we know that Jesus was not talking about physical water. He said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks this physical water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him, it will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So Jesus is not talking about hydration. Jesus is talking about salvation. Jesus is talking about eternal life that people can have. And I don't, I don't actually know of a single more public event in, in the scriptures where Jesus stands up and just draws every eye to him. You know, there are plenty of places in Mark's gospel where Jesus tells people to stay quiet. Even in the beginning of seven, his brothers and sisters say, go show yourself to the world. So apparently this was a huge ordeal that Jesus goes and stands up and draws everyone to him. I think we can learn something from that. And I think we can learn that Jesus is making it very clear he is the source of salvation. He, is, he has every eye in the nation on him and he wants to do two things. He wants to claim to be God and he wants to claim to offer eternal life. And that's exactly what he does. And this is like Adam prayed earlier, this is what makes Christianity unique, is that salvation is by Jesus. Jesus doesn't stand up and, and give them a five-step list. It's, it's startling what he does, but he just says, come to me. I am the source. The, the reason I wanted to entitle this sermon The Source of Service is because in a very real way, it'd be less than honest to start anywhere else. We can never forget that Jesus is the source of the salvation, not us, not, you know, awesome church services, you know, Sundays won't save anyone, service projects won't save anyone, small groups won't save anyone, those are good things, but the reason we do those things is to get back to the source, it's to get back to Jesus, just like it says in Hebrews 5, 9, Jesus being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So that's the first point. Jesus is the source of salvation. But we also see something interesting in these verses. My second point is Jesus is the source of service. Jesus is the source of salvation, but also we see that Jesus is the source of service. So look at verse 38. So Jesus says something pretty interesting. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this is interesting because in John 4, when he's speaking to the woman at the well, Jesus said something similar. He says, whoever believes in me, the water that I give will be a, a, a well, a fountain welling up into eternal life. But what's interesting here is instead of calling it a well, he calls it a river. What's the difference? What, is, what does Jesus mean 
when he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, if we look at the verse, there's actually a clue. Look at uh, verse 38. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So that's a great clue. We just have to go to the Old Testament and we have to find the verse that says, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water, or something along those lines, right? Pretty simple. The problem is, and if you look in your Bible, you may notice, there is no footnote. There is no reference because there's no one verse in the Old Testament that says these exact things. There's no Old Testament verse that says, whoever believes out of their heart will flow rivers of living water, like that. So what do we do with this? I'm sure some liberal scholars and critics would say, well, see, there's a great example of Jesus, you know, just making a mistake. Poor guy, had an off day and clearly is not God because he doesn't even know what's in the Old Testament. Well, we can say that's probably silly because think about it. Jesus just took, Jesus just stood up in front of the entire nation of Israel to proclaim that he was God and to proclaim that he offered eternal life. I think he would have rehearsed this one, you know. I think he would have practiced this one. But also notice that no one has any problem with the scripture that he quotes. In fact, if you look at uh, verses 40 through 52, verse 15, verse 46, it seems like people are actually impressed with Jesus' knowledge of the scripture. No one is criticizing what he says. So what's the solution? The solution is this. Jesus is not quoting one specific verse. Jesus is quoting an Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is quoting a theme. He's quoting a concept that appears in multiple places in the Old Testament. So he's not just quoting one specific passage. He's quoting a constellation of passages, as it were. So what passages does Jesus have in mind? What does he mean, as the scripture has said? Well, this morning we've looked at a couple. We've looked at a couple of them already. We've seen in our... Uh, 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 scripture reading from Jeremiah. You saw the Jeremiah 2, verse 13, which says, my, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So in Jeremiah 2, 13, God says, I am the fountain of living waters. You see that phrase, living waters. You have to know a little bit of the, the Bible story there to understand the, the reference. Um, sometimes I use Star Wars as a good guide to knowing the, the episodes of the Bible. So episode one, okay, real quick, this is off, um, off my script, but episode one is Genesis through Deuteronomy-ish, okay? Um, it's the Phantom Menace. So Satan comes and he tempts Adam and Eve and everything falls into chaos and you know, Satan's trying to persecute the people of God. Episode two, you've got the Joshua kind of through Solomon. You know, the Israelites are fighting these wars, a holy war. David is fighting these battles. It's Attack of the Clones, okay? And then you get to episode three, okay, which is where they fall into sin, and then they get literally back into Egypt. They get drugged back into Egypt. It's not Egypt this time, it's Babylon. They get exiled, Revenge of the Sith. So, you see, so, and then that brings you up to, after Revenge of the Sith, a new hope, you know, where Jesus walks onto the stage, okay? So, where we are right now in the Bible story Jesus is quoting from is Revenge of the Sith, okay? So, Jeremiah is prophesying, and he's saying, he's saying, 
we're in trouble. We are doomed. A melting pot facing the north is coming, and they're going to take us all away. They're going to they're destroy us. We have to repent because we've forsaken the fountain of living waters. But they don't repent, and they do get carried away into exile, back into Egypt. It's Babylon. Well, you see that theme of living waters not only there, but you see that after they come back out of exile in, in Zechariah, like we read this morning uh, in the call to worship, Zechariah 14, 8 through 9, which they actually at the Feast of Booths would often read from the book of Zechariah. And maybe when Jesus was teaching in the temple earlier in this chapter, he was teaching from Zechariah because they would read this book. But Zechariah 14, 8 through 9 says, On that day... Living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea, and half of them to the western seas. So you see this theme before the exile. You see this theme after the exile. And by the way, the Dead Sea, that's kind of a weird thing for the waters to flow to. Because the Dead Sea, as we all know, is dead, right? Because nothing grows there. The salt content is so high, nothing lives or grows around the Dead Sea. So we've seen these two prophecies, one before and one after exile. There's one that ties them all together. And if you have your thumb there, that is Ezekiel 47. So if you're at Ezekiel, the thing about Ezekiel, which is very interesting, is he was prophesying in exile. So he wasn't wasn't like Zechariah and like Jeremiah in Jerusalem. He was actually in Babylon as he prophesied. And in Ezekiel 47, he sees this vision. This vision of a temple. And it's such an interesting passage, and uh, I'm going to read some of it. But try to imagine it in your mind. Try to imagine what he's describing. Ezekiel says in verse 1, chapter 47, He brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold. Verse 2, He brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around. Behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Then verse 3, Going on eastward with a measuring line in hand, the man measured a, thou- a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, and the water was ankle deep. And then he leads me another thousand cubits, and it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep, and then it becomes a river. Look at verse 5. It was a river that I could not pass through. The water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in. And the angel said, son of man, have you seen this? Kind of interesting. There's, there's the temple, and there's this river it's flowing out, and it's increasing, increasing, increasing. Then look, look at verse 7. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the Arabah, to the desert, and enters the sea, the Dead Sea. And when the water flows into the sea. Listen to this. When the water flows into the sea, the Dead Sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever this river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where this river goes. It's a beautiful image. It's, it's this image of a river flowing from the temple, and it's going to the Dead Sea. And when it gets to the Dead Sea, even the Dead Sea lives because of the river of living water. And there are trees along the bank, and there are fish, and everything lives wherever this river goes. 
This is clearly the passage that Zechariah has in mind when he says in chapter 14, on that day, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western seas. Okay, so it's been kind of abstract, but try to pull, pull it all together. How does this relate to what Jesus is saying? Well, thankfully, sometimes this happens in the Bible. You hope it happens when you're preaching. John actually provides an interpretation with the, with the verses. So look down at verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given. Jesus was not yet glorified. So what's the point? The point is this. The Holy Spirit is the rivers of living water that flows out of the hearts of believers. This is just like what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 3.16 when he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? And in case they missed it, he also says it in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? So what, what does all this mean? It means this. Jesus wants rivers of living water to flow from you, from your life, out of your heart. And he wants it to flow to places that are dead because he wants to see people live. He wants to see the dead come to life. It means that Jesus is not only the source of our personal salvation. It means that Jesus is the source of service. In other words, it means that when Jesus saved you, and when he saved me, he, he did it for more than just to save us. He did it for more than just to get us in. He actually has a plan that's bigger and better than just you, than just me. It's not that he saved us. It wasn't a bait and switch. It wasn't like Jesus is trying to use us in some way, like, come have eternal life. Okay, now get to work. That's why you're here. It's not like that. What it is is the best thing that you could possibly do is fulfill the purpose that God has and that is to be a source of living waters that flow. When Jesus saved his bride, he wanted more than just a trophy wife. He wanted a bride that would be useful, like it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He wanted a bride that would be active, like Ephesians 2, which is probably the best passage if you just want to think about all the levels of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 1 through 14, you know, we were dead, like the Dead Sea. We were dead in our sins. But he saved us by his grace, not by works. So we're not saved by service. We're saved by his grace, not by our works, so that no one can boast. It's the gift of God. And then it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The point is, it's important for every believer, for the health of every Christian, not only to be filled, but to pour out, to flow, to serve. I love how Adam shared last week about SSS that, you know, after we look up to God, then what we do is we look out, we look out to others. And then he said we look in. And now I'm not going to take that too far and say that Adam you know, gave that order for a very specific reason. I'm not going to say that service is more important than small groups. Like, I'm not going to say that you should make sure you participate in a service with Church of the Redeemer before you get involved in one of Daryl's small groups. That's not what I'm trying to say. 
I'm not trying to say that. Even though I have the microphone and I could say that. I'm not saying that. Because Daryl has to preach after me. So. But what I am saying is this. Proverbs 11.25. One who waters will himself be watered. And what that means is we actually gain by giving. And if you notice in your Christian life something that's stale or salty or dead, the question could be, are you pouring out? Are you fulfilling the purpose God created you for? Are you, are you, are you going? Are you serving? Because you know why the Dead Sea is dead after all. It's not dead because nothing flows into it. You know, the Jordan River flows straight down into the, the Dead Sea. It's got, you know, steady income all the time. The reason the Dead Sea is dead is because nothing flows out of it. Nothing leaves the Dead Sea, and that is why it is dead. Far be it from us to be Dead Seas. Every time Jesus says, follow me, he says, I will make you fishers of men. And when Jesus says, come drink, he also says, rivers of living water will flow from you. And that's what you see in John 4. What happened to the woman at the well? She goes out. The woman who had, you know, 35 husbands or whatever. She goes out into the town where she is probably not with the best reputation. And she knocks on doors or whatever they had back then. And she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Is this the Christ? When Jesus saves us by his grace, he calls us for his service. That's what this is saying. Finally, so we've seen Jesus is the source of salvation. Jesus is the source of service. I want to talk about some implications of what this means. What do these verses mean for our church as we think about service? This is my third and main point. Our service must be Jesus-focused service. Our service must be Jesus-focused service. I couldn't think of a better way to word that, so... But our service needs to be focused on Jesus. It needs to be Jesus-focused service. If everything we've said is true, if, if Jesus is the source of salvation, if Jesus is the source of service, if Jesus is willing to stand up in front of the entire nation and point every eye on him and say, come to me, far be it from us to do something else. Jesus is the source. And we need to be devoted to him. There's a great quote from Oswald Chambers and uh, This is what he says about devotion to Jesus. He says, a person who has been touched by the Spirit of God suddenly says, now I see who Jesus is. That is the source of devotion. Listen to this. Today, we have substituted doctrinal belief for personal belief. And that is why so many people are devoted to causes and so few are devoted to Jesus Christ. Listen to that. So many people are devoted to causes, and so few are devoted to Jesus Christ. People do not really want to be devoted to Jesus, but only to the cause he started. Far be that from us. Let our service be devoted to Jesus, not just to good causes. The goal is not just to get people in our doors or wearing our t-shirts or whatever. The goal is to get them to Jesus. That is what we must be about. And so three implications for us for us as a church, and then we'll close. The first implication of Jesus-focused service is we must always aim to draw others to Jesus. C.S. Lewis has a, a really great uh, quote on this. It's called For No Other Purpose. And basically he says, 
I'll just summarize it. But he says, he says, sometimes we make it too complicated. We, we think like the church has all these many things it has to be doing. It's, it's got to be educating. It's got to be serving the homeless. We've got to be worshiping awesome and all these things. And C.S. Lewis says it's really much more simple. And he compares it to the state, to the government. He says the government exists so that a man can read his own book in his own house, so that a husband and a wife can have a chat by a fire, so that, you know, a man can plow, work in his own garden. And if the state is not protecting and preserving those moments of human happiness, it's all pointless. All the meetings of the state are pointless. It's to promote the, the welfare of the people. He says, like that, the church has a very narrow focus. And C.S. Lewis says, the focus is this. We must be drawing people into Christ and making them become little Christs. And if we're not doing that, we're not doing what we should be. It's all pointless. We have to draw others to Jesus. That's the first implication. Because what you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. And so as we move into the new building, which is awesome, it really is, we're not trying to win people with a really awesome building to win them because we'll win them to an awesome building. And I'm sure they'll find a more awesome building. We're trying to win people to Jesus. And so however we serve and wherever we serve, we've got to be thinking, are we drawing people to us or are we stepping out of the way to draw them to Jesus? The first implication, we must always draw others to Jesus. The second implication of this passage, I think is very obvious from verse 39, we have to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. We must go in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, um, they're... they're passages in the Bible that talk about power with the Holy Spirit, like Acts 1-8. You know, it's a great commission passage where Jesus says, and our, our missions at Redeemer is built on that verse, and it says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So it starts and it goes out. But that, that phrase, you shall receive power, you know, I've always wondered, what does that mean? And it's kind of tempting sometimes to think that it's got to be like a miraculous like superhero power. And if I don't have that, then I guess like I just got bypassed in the process or something. You know, like what's my super, what's my superpower? But Paul says to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, we have received a spirit, not of fear. We've received a spirit of power. And then what does he say? In doing superpower things. No, he says, we received a, a spirit of power, of love, of self-control. And so, friends, I think as we go, we have to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to go and we have to be peaceful, the power to be peaceful when friends and family provoke us, the power to be patient with all kinds of people, even though that they're different from us and even when progress doesn't come as fast as we want, the power to be kind, especially to those who are mean and take advantage of us, the power to be good and want what is good in every sphere of life. The power to be faithful after years of long service when the road is not getting shorter. The power to be gentle, caring rather than competing and condemning. And the power to control ourselves, to tame our desires, to choose to be brave and honest when we're called upon. So two implications. The first is we have to draw others to Jesus. The second is we have to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the third implication for us. We must go together. We must go together. Our mission statement actually says, going together to make disciples of all nations. 
The task is greater than any one of us. The task is greater than any single one of us can do. And what these verses show is that, like it says in verse 38, whoever believes, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is a call for every single Christian. Every single Christian is called into service of some sort. And as we go together, we have to make sure that we not only find our place, but that we help others find their place as a church. We have to go together and help each other find our place. If you want to know how to be involved in missions, what you can do at Redeemer, please come to me. I would love to talk with you about that. And the reason is because, like it says in Ephesians, you were created for it, created for good works. Jesus is the source. And remember this, when he saved you by his grace, he saved you for his service. Let's pray.